Hey, welcome to BKC. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I believe that no matter who you are in the room this morning, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or if you are exploring Christianity, if you're atheists or agnostic, maybe you just consider yourself spiritual. As a human being, there's one question we all will have to wrestle with in our lifetime. And it's this question, who am I? Who am I? It's an identity question. It's a question that a lot of us spend a lot of our 20s trying to figure out if we know it or not. Some of us try to, you know, in our 20s or or out of high school, skip over answering that question directly and jump into, you know, a major of some sort. Mine was biology, only to go through school for the first year, have a crisis of identity of sorts and realize you have to switch majors. That may or may not have happened to me, but some of us, you know, we don't go the university route. We jump right into a career, right? Because even though we know it or not, we're trying to pursue identity and meaning and purpose. And we find a career that has, you know, provides a good source of income only to later on have like a midlife crisis, existential crisis of sorts and wonder what we're doing with our lives. Answering this question or figuring out our identity, uh, this crisis of identity can happen many transitions in our lives as human beings. It can happen in the simple transition of uh, moving from a career to motherhood or from motherhood to your kids all going to school or from fatherhood to all your kids going to school. Or for some of you, it might happen when you retire and you find your days You're unsure what you can do consistently to bring about meaning or identity or purpose. And you struggle because all of a sudden, without a job, you realize that a lot of your identity was actually linked to what you do. So again, we find ourselves asking this question, who am I? Who are you? Apart from being a teacher or an entrepreneur or a business owner or a mom or a dad Who are you? How would you fill in the blank to that question this morning? The question that I want us to take time to try to answer this morning is this. How do you build a strong identity that can weather and withstand any changes of situations or jobs or vocations or seasons of life, or suffering, how do you develop an identity that lasts? Or another way to put it is, how do you find your truest self? How do you find your truest self? As Dan said, we've been in the book of Mark this past uh, couple months. And as we continue in it, we find here in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus is hitting the height of his popularity. Word is spreading about Jesus and what he has done. And we come into the scene and he is moving. He's escaping from this contentious situation where these religious leaders are plotting to kill him. So he goes to the lake with his disciples. And as he goes to this lake, we find crowds of people coming from everywhere. Commentators say that this could have been tens of thousands of people. And add on to that hundreds of people coming from Judea or Idumea. These are just places or regions that are far away from where he's at in this moment. And the author, Mark, what he's trying to convey to us in verse 8 by naming all these 
places is that word is spreading further out into the land, into the region. People are coming from north, south, east, and west to see this Jesus, to see this miracle worker, to experience healing, to experience freedom from demon possession, to see this miracle worker. And so much so that this word crowd that we find in verse nine actually can be translated into crushing or pushing. Like this, this crowd is pushing and crowding and crushing Jesus because the, everybody wants to get a taste, a touch. And the interesting thing to me is as we read this story is Jesus' response. At the height of his fame, at the height of his popularity, Jesus' response to all of this is what? He continues his mission. He gets on a boat and he starts teaching. And as we said, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. But not only that, he goes up on this mountain and he starts establishing the kingdom of God here on earth. And the interesting thing is how he does that. He starts by naming and renaming people. Again, verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. In English, we read these verses and sometimes the main theme of this paragraph can get lost in translation. And in verse 14, this word appointed, you could underline it in your Bibles, he appointed 12. In the original language, actually it more so conveys this understanding or this word that we know as named. He named them. In the original language, it's this word nomen, from which we get the word nomenclature, for which I think we get the word in English name. He named them. He put names on them. He said, you are the sent ones. You are the apostles. After that, he goes down into individual people's lives and he's like, hey, Simon, now your name's Pete. Hey, James and John, he, rena- he renames them. I'm not even trying to say it either, but he calls them Thunder, which is interesting because I don't even know what that means. But the point is that Jesus is naming and renaming people. So here is the question, what is happening here? What is the significance of this moment, right? Because everything that Jesus does is intentional. You have to understand that in ancient culture, unlike modern day culture, names and their meaning were extremely important. And I say that because I don't know about you, but a lot of times we pick names or particularly when we name our kids, we pick names that we like that sound good to us, right? For instance, uh, my daughter Vesper, uh, who's sitting over there, when me and my wife stumbled across her name, it came about when we were watching one of our favorite movies, Casino Royale. Okay, so some of you might know the movie, James Bond, you know what I'm talking about. So Vesper Lynn is one of the characters. But not only that, not only did we like the sound of the name, right? Later on, we found out that in Latin, Vespers means evening prayer or prayer. And one thing that we did with Vesper, who's our third kid, three of four, uh, we decided not to find out if we were having a boy or a girl. But because we had two boys and it was a gong show at our house, we were praying desperately every night for nine months for a girl. And sure enough, God answered that prayer. But again, I think a lot of culture picks names because of how they sound, more so how they, uh, what they mean, right? That's why, uh, for example, Robert Allen Zimmerman, changed his name to Bob Dylan. Or Elizabeth Woolridge Grant 
changed her name to Alana Del Rey. Or maybe you know this one. Or Aubrey Graham changed his name to Drake. See, one thing that is common in that culture and our culture is this, right? When it comes to changing your name, there is a power to changing your name. It's a way to reinvent yourself. It's a way to gain a new identity. And in ancient times, names were extremely important and naming was an act of great importance and power. Your name was supposed to convey the essence of who you were. And if you went through a great change in life, you had to change your name. If you had multiple names, it meant that you were a person of great stature and, uh, uh, and you were a person of multi-dimensions. Theologians say that everyone had a personal name in this culture, a true name, the name that which they thought of themselves, and you didn't hand out this name to people. Get that. At least you didn't give everybody the right to use this true name because that they could control you if they knew this name. It gave them a certain power over you in this culture. That's why when, uh, you know, your parents get mad at you, right? They use your full name, Benjamin Cumbalason Hilson. You know, as a parent, I, I use that too. So I go, Lennon Ella Hilson. Why? Why do you do that as a parent? Because in that moment, right, you're exerting an authority. You're exerting a power over that person because you know their true name. This starts to make sense if you work your way back to the book of Genesis, right? Naming was always an act of authority, but it was a wholesome act of authority. It was the right kind of authority because when you name something, you sense responsibility that you have over that person. But here's the thing. When humans name something, there's a limit to how much power we can exert over that person, right? You can name your daughter Angel, but they can grow up to be a terror. You know what I'm saying? It reminds you that ultimately when human beings name, there's a limit to how much power we have in the naming of that person. But as one pastor says, with God, it's different. Because if you go back to the book of Genesis, when you actually see God creating, you do, you do not see God snapping things into existence with his omnipotent figures. You don't see God thinking things into existence with his omnipotent thoughts. You see God naming things into existence with his omnipotent word. God names things into existence. That's how he creates. He doesn't say, let there be light and then go for and do something to make light. He says, let there be light, and there was light. What does that mean? It means that naming creates the reality. God's name has creative power. That's why when you go through Genesis 1, you'll see him saying, and he called it sky, and he called it day, and he called it night. Why all the calling? Why all the naming? Because when God names... He doesn't like when we name, describe the nature of the thing we're naming. But when God names, he determines the nature of the thing he names. I'm going to say that again. When God names, he doesn't like when we name, describe the nature of the thing we're naming. But when God names, he determines the nature of the thing he naming. So when Jesus names, let me ask you this, does he name like us or does he name like God? 
the answer to the question is he names like God. Again, in the English translation, it masks this a little bit, but in verse 14 in the CSB translation of this word, it says he named them apostles, but again, he appointed them. He named them. This word also appointed can mean created. It says he created 12. It's a Greek way of expressing or it's used for an artist creating a work of art. He made them 12. In other words, he didn't look at these 12 guys and say, you have what it takes. He looked at these 12 guys in the mess that they were in, these fishermen, and he says, I will give you what he te- it takes. He didn't recognize that they have what it took. He gave them what he, that it took to be his disciples, to follow him, to carry out his ministry. That's the kind of power Jesus has, Jesus has when he names you. Listen, Peter, which in this original language, you know, his name means rock or something. Like he wasn't named rock because he was built like Dwayne Johnson, right? He wasn't named rock because he was a stable, steady guy. Later on in the gospels, you're actually going to see Jesus call him Satan, right? And then he's going to go and like uh, deny Jesus three times only to be restored. This guy was not stable, but Jesus in this moment by naming him is speaking into existence something that isn't there, strength. So for me and you, Jesus, by his word, has the power to create. So what I want you to get this morning is if you are weak and Jesus names you strong, he will make you strong. If your life is messed up and you're caught up in sin and addiction, but Jesus calls you righteous, he will make you righteous like he is righteous. That's the power that Jesus has when he names someone, when he gives them a new identity. In other words, Jesus has divine power to call into being out of nothing that which he names as he names it. Do you understand what that means when it comes to who you are and your identity as a human being? Specifically as a follower of Jesus, if that is you this morning, this is what it means about your identity and the answer to that question. Your identity is not achieved, it's received. Your identity is not achieved, it's received. Your identity is not based on who you are now in this moment, but who you are becoming through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. But here's the thing about that truth. It's easier read or said or uh, seen on a screen than applied to our lives or lived out. Because there's two things, two problems that we as human beings living in 2024 have with this statement. First, we are taught in this culture to despise the idea of someone else placing an identity or telling us who we are. At, at least at a level we're somewhat molded to show some sort of disdain towards this idea, right? Because what? We, in our culture, we like self-identifying, right? We like self-identifying. We are more used to a system of identity formation uh, that's called expressive individualism, okay? It's all over the movies uh, that we watch on Netflix. Like, think about any coming-of-age movie that you probably watched in the last 10 years, okay? This idea is embedded in it, this process of formation. And this is what it is. In the simplest way, this is how I would describe it. It's this idea. Be who you want to be, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, 
follow your heart, aka the desires of your heart. Don't try to get affirmation from others. Affirm yourself because you are doing what you want to do. And through that, you create your identity or who you want to be. This is expressive individualism in a nutshell, okay? Me and my wife were watching this movie yesterday night and the climax of this movie, it's a musical, was this girl in high school singing this song about how she's going to be me and no one else can do anything to change that, right? This is this idea. And as a parent, this is what I'm learning, okay? It's in the movies that we watch. Specifically, it's all over those Disney movies that you probably let your kids watch, that I let my kids watch. And don't worry, I'm not hating on Disney. Okay, we take our kids to Disneyland. We got Disney Plus, right? I'm not worried about Mickey Mouse discipling my kids because me and my wife are forming our kids at home. But listen to how this can work our way into our subconscious, okay? I think I've given you this example before, but if you don't know, just think of Frozen. Frozen. Don't worry, parents. I'm not going to play this song, but think, <laughs> think about that song, Let It Go, right? That you probably heard a million times at this point, okay? I had the joy of having four kids discover Frozen for the first time. So for the last 15 years, this has been my life. But the lyrics to that song, okay? It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. The idea is that we need to connect to some source deep within us to find our truest selves, to be our truest selves. We don't need some source outside of ourselves, be it family or people, community or God or some cosmic good or supernatural thing. People actually believe in this culture. It's not the way that you find your truest self. It's actually the way to live life to the fullest. But again, this grates up against the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus, the invitation that Jesus gives all of us. Because this is what we need to realize when we read this passage, when we read this scene here, Mark 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and he called 12. Everybody in this Jewish culture would have known what he was doing. This is not an accidental action. This is an intentional action with an intentional message. And that is that these 12 people represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So when God, Jesus, went up on this mountain and would call 12 to him, what he was saying with what he was doing was that he was creating a new people of God. He was creating a new humanity. He was creating a new community. He was restoring all things. Again, he was establishing what we know as the church, what we're all a part of as followers of Jesus. And he's saying this community, this new community, the church centers around this one thing. And that is what? What did he call these disciples to do? The first thing in verse 14, what did he call them to do? Be with him. Be with him. To recenter their lives around Jesus. What we call here at PKC as apprenticing Jesus to reorder your life around Jesus. This is the very act of dying to yourself. This is not self-expression, but dying to yourself, your will for your life, the way that you want to live your life, adopting Jesus's will for your life, the way he wants you to live your life in order to become the person he has created you to be. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let them deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you need to deny yourself. And if you don't deny yourself, instead of giving your, uh, gaining your life, instead of living it to the full, instead of figuring out who you are, your truest self, you'll actually lose your life. Well, the natural tendency in all of us is to affirm ourselves, to serve your own interests, to look out for your own advancement in this life in order for you to achieve whatever idea of being successful in this life looks to you. Jesus says, abandon that type of thinking. That's why he says in verse 24, take up your cross and follow me. See, this gets lost in translation also because a lot of us, when we hear the word cross, we kind of think of like a nice you know, piece of jewelry around some people's necks, but there's nothing wrong with wearing that, you know, or a nice wooden cross, right? But right away, it loses its impact and implication because in this culture, when they heard the word cross, they knew it meant one thing, death. The most dishonorable, shameful death, in fact. When they heard, take up your cross, the first thing that popped into their minds was torture. So in essence, Jesus is saying, die to your own desires and will for your life and instead live to accomplish what God desires and he wills for your life. This is totally different thinking than our culture, isn't it? And the thing about it is as we model our lives after Jesus, who is our model, it'll lead us to moments of discomfort. Dying to your desires is not a fun act. And in this life, no matter if you're a Christian or not, you're probably going to go through seasons of suffering. Suffering is another way that we die to some of these desires. And this is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous German theologian and writer who stood up to the Nazi regime and was put to death because of that, he called discipleship this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. And only when this is done do you begin to move toward finding your truest self. And here's the thing, PKC, I don't know what your cross is going to look like. That's something that God will reveal to you directly or maybe indirectly by calling you to obey. And for everyone, it's different. Sometimes our cross comes to us in the form of suffering because we live in a fallen world that's full of sin still. Sometimes it comes as we decide to go a different path that God's calling us to. For us, it was moving out to Toronto and then coming back to BC, not knowing what God had for us, right? To get you thinking a little bit, a lot of times it is uncomfortable. Sometimes dying to yourself is uncomfortable. You know, for us, when I got called into ministry, me and my wife, we had two great jobs, right? Making good amount of money for us as 22-year-olds. And then I got called into ministry where I was working at the bank part-time, working at the church, and then working at the church full-time. And it was a hard season that we were just living off of like, I don't know, $23,000 a year. We had two kids. It was a tough season of trying to make life happen. But God provided and looking back in those moments when God told me to leave that career to pursue ministry, 
I wouldn't trade them for the world because of the identity formation that happened in those moments. But here's the thing. Because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus took a symbol, the cross, that meant only one thing back then, right? Death. But by one act of love, he redefined it to mean life for those who choose to follow him. True life. And when you follow Jesus, the suffering you have to bear as you experience the evil of the world we live in because of the effects of sin, they don't destroy you but can refine you and remake you into what you're truly called to be. That's the power of the cross. But here's the reality in the room like this, this morning. Some of us this morning who think we are following Jesus haven't actually fully died to ourselves, died to those desires from our old life. How do I know that? Because I've gone through that same season in my own life. And instead of dying to those desires, we're trying to drag them into our new life with Jesus. Instead of bending our will to God's will, we're trying to bend God's will to our will and how we want to live our lives. So you want the benefits of Jesus without the personal sacrifice. It's exactly like the crowds that we find in the story. They want Jesus as healer, but they do not want Jesus as king of their lives. Lord of all. So my question for you this morning is to reflect and take a look at your life in this moment. Have you died to those desires? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you in this moment, prompt you. What are those things that you're still holding on to? What are those things that you're trying to drag into your new life? He's made you a new creation. He's given you a new name. He's given you a new identity. See, the beauty of, of Jesus is that he doesn't leave us to our own intuitions and wants. He actually tries to give us words of grace. He tries to lead us in the different direction because he warns us in Matthew 6, 25, for whoever clings to his life will lose it. See, when you look inside to discover your deepest desires and dreams and express them, you must do this yourself and not rely on others to affirm you and tell you who you are. But the thing about this, it's impossible to figure out who you are this way. You can't get identity through self-recognition. It must come from others. How do I know this is true? Right? Just look at old um, um, uh, American Idol auditions, right? Okay? People who think through self-recognition that they are great singers, right? And you probably watch these YouTube videos, right? But actually, they're horrible singers, right? They're brutal. And these are what this, these examples, they, they tell us that you cannot self-recognize yourself. You can't affirm yourself right? And you could probably think of ideas of different things. And here's the point. An identity that leads us to understand our own self-worth doesn't work that way, right? In order to gain an actual understanding of our worth and our value, we need someone outside of ourselves to say we have great worth and value. In fact, the greater the worth of that someone or someone's, the more power they have to instill in us a sense of self-worth. Hence why all those shows are full of celebrities, right? 
because we live in a celebrity-driven culture. And so we believe that they have tons of self-worth and tons of value in our culture. So therefore, they can instill in us a sense of self-worth. But Jesus says, if we cling to our desires and try to live our lives in that way, we will lose our life. When looking at the original language, this word life can also be translated soul. The center of our being, our truest self. You lose yourself this way. You lose your soul, your identity. You don't find it. You lose it. So again, here's the question. How do you find your truest self? The words of Jesus, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. See, to find yourself, you need to actually lose yourself. You need to die to your selfish desires. You need to die to whatever idea, direction, will you have for your life and fully surrender it over to Jesus. Why? Because this is the only way to achieve an identity that will last, that doesn't change with the situation or what people say about you. This is the only way to build a strong idea that can weather anything, the loss of a job or career or work or bankruptcy, whatever it is. It's, this only happens when you stop trying to find and serve yourself, but start trying to serve God and others. And here's the amazing thing. As you surrender to God, you're surrendering to a God that knows you more deeply and intimately and better than you know yourself because he created you. He created you. And you're surrendering to the one true God who intends to make us whole and perfect, to be truly human. See, Jesus shows us what it truly means to be human, the image of God and the crux, the crux of this remaking ourselves happens as we come into a relationship with God. Verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can it anyone give in exchange for their soul? Or in another version, as I read, it says, it's a little bit more punchy, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Notice those words in verse 26, profit, gains, forfeits, these are all financial terms. These are all terms that are communicating value. He's asking, what is the value of your soul? What is the value of your life? What can a person give besides money to trade for his life, right? His or her soul, her true self, your true self. And listen, this is where it gets really good. Remember what I said earlier? In order to gain an actual understanding of our worth and value, we need someone outside of ourselves to say we have great worth and value. In fact, the greater the worth of that someone or someone's, the more power they have to instill in us a sense of self-worth and value, okay? In the eyes of God, in the opinion of the one and only one in the universe whose opinion counts. We were so valuable to him that while we were messed up, sinning, 
holding on to our selfish desires. He sent his son, Jesus, the son of God, the one who had the highest honor, the highest name, the highest identity possible. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2, 6, my paraphrase, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Whoso that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we could have an everlasting name and find a true identity that lasts forever, that doesn't change with the situation and can never be taken from us. Again, the beauty of the gospel is our identity is not achieved, but received. That identity is received the moment we surrender our lives to Jesus and make him Lord of our life, which reconciles us to God. And this reconciliation to Christ is key because Christ is the source of life for all creation. Christ is life. Therefore, if we discover who we really are, we must find the blueprint of who we are meant to be in the person of Christ because he is the new Adam. This is how we find our truest selves, the person that God created us to be and therefore what he wants us to accomplish as we live out our lives for his glory, no matter what our vocation, no matter what our career, no matter what we do or don't do in this life. We have adopted the saying here at PKC, Jesus isn't just our savior, but also our model. He's the model of what it looks like to truly be human. And listen, Jesus isn't the only identity that lasts. He actually is the only identity we have as human beings. We aren't actually able to choose our identity. Choosing our identity is a postmodern fallacy that a lot of us believe. But you can't choose. God identifies for us the only real identity that we have. It's our identity whether we believe it or not. And here's the astonishing thing about this truth and your unique individuality. Because right now in this moment, you're like, okay, you know, Ben, if we all image Jesus, you know, won't we just all look like clones, right? Like the stormtroopers in Star Wars, right? Here's the beauty of this. Robert Mulholland Jr. says this in his book, Invitation to a Journey. When all of us perfectly formed in the image of Christ, we will not be a group of clones. In fact, we find our unique individuality only to the extent, extent that we are fully formed in the image of Christ. It's only in Christ that we find our individuality. As we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit enables us to live life like him, to become like him, to think like him, experiencing true life. In every generation, there's a couple people that take Jesus at his word who actually figure out who they are called to be and live into that. This morning, PKC, my question for you is, will that be you? This is an invitation to all of us this morning. It's a free gift. Jesus is calling this morning. How would you respond? As the band comes up, I, I want us to pray. And I'm just going to take a moment to let the Holy Spirit speak to you individually and then we're going to sing some songs and worship in response so come Holy Spirit